The United States' agenda has always been to profit off of black and brown bodies. This government is currently enforcing the terrorism of a police state and white supremacy. And they have been since the day they stole this land from indigenous people and stole people from their homelands. Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and the whole world is marching in solidarity and support with the movement for Black Lives. People have been turning out in marching from San Francisco, where Simone Jacques, a 17-year-old high school student that we opened the show with as she addressed a crowd of 20,000 people, to Bristol, England, where they tore down the statue of a famous slave trader, to Italy, Germany, Canada, Japan, Korea, Australia, Brazil, New Zealand. The list goes on and on. And in the United States, there have been demonstrations in all 50 states in more than 700 cities. Literally all over the world, there's an international outpouring to protest the police murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and more broadly, to protest the treatment of black people in general. This is quite possibly the largest multiracial mobilization in support of black people in the history of this country, if not the world. It, it's a stunning moment in history we're living through, coming on top of a uh, once in a hundred years global pandemic, mind you, which is still out there, we still haven't resolved. But we're going to talk today about what to make of all this, why it's happening, and what types of changes might now be possible. And for that conversation, I am joined by my co-host, Charlene Chang. Hi, Charlene. Hi, Steve. And we're also joined today by Julie Martinez-Ortega, who usually joins us as our data doctor, but is also here today as a longtime social change activist. Julie and I marched together with the Watsonville, California cannery strikers back in 1985 when we were college students. And she's a national leader in the Latino community as well. Thank you for joining us, Julie. Hey, Steve. And yes, you're right. We've certainly been through a lot together over the years, and I'm just really grateful for the chance to talk through these issues with you guys. Yeah, it's definitely a lot, and we're just going to try our best today to talk about um, some of the top-line issues related to everything that's going on. I thought we could start, actually, I'd really love to start with some personal reflections, because I know this all hits us all in different ways, and we all feel it differently personally, and then situate this moment in historical and political context, and then close with discussing solutions and ways to move forward. How does that sound? Sounds good. So before we do that, to give a taste of the international flavor of this movement, I wanted to play this clip from the British Broadcasting Corporation, BCC, about the protest that's been happening in London. Tens of thousands of people took part in further anti-racism protests across Britain today with the statue of a 17th century slave trader pulled down in Bristol. The monument to Edward Colston, which had stood in the city centre for more than a century, was toppled and pushed into the river. Yeah, I just love that. I, mean, I actually played it several times last night while I was watching. I think people should definitely watch the whole BBC clip, which we'll have in the show notes. So those protesters pulled that statue down, which had been up for 100 years, rolled it down the street, paused to put their knee on the neck of the slaveholder statue, and then took it to the river and threw it into the river. And then I interviewed all these black folks there talking about how cathartic the whole thing was. And I have to say, I found it cathartic just watching it on TV, and I never even heard of that dude before. Yeah, it's really amazing. Like, we've been talking about just to watch 
the responses unfold globally. Many of us just, you know, we haven't seen anything like this. And I can't imagine how that felt, by the way, watching them roll it. It just must be so liberating. And like you said, cathartic. It made me want to also just, I'm like, can I have a chance? I want to <laughs> jump, jump in there and roll that thing too. And there's definitely a lot of inspiring things happening out there. So speaking of how all this is making us feel, besides watching YouTube clips of statues, of slave traders being pushed in the river, how are you each personally holding up? Yeah, you know, I'll say uh, un- until last night, frankly, I was pretty cynical about it all. Um, and I think, I don't know, jaded or, you know, just, and a certain amount of, I guess, emotional scar tissue gets built up right over 35 years of protesting. And so I was yeah. just, uh, uh, my first response was just kind of feeling tired and weary. You know, personally, I've been protesting police killings and beatings of black people for decades. Wow. I think I talked last podcast about Melvin Trust, the 17-year-old San Jose, California um, youth who was killed by police in 1985. That was my first police brutality march. Rodney King in 1992, the Trayvon Martin in 2012, Eric Garner in 2014, Michael Brown in 2014. That's just a small snapshot of the people, right? So I was just very tired and then also very cynical, kind of surprised about what felt like lip service as more and more mainstream people started speaking out. It felt to me like out of the blue, different corporations and very mainstream entities that never had a word to say about black people, all of a sudden professing their solidarity and support. Zuckerberg saying that, you know, Facebook's going to give $10 million to fight racial inequality. And the first response is like, well, if you Ooh, care about racial inequality. <laughs> well, right. There's that issue, right? So and I actually did the math on this. So Zuckerberg, who's worth $50 billion, Wow. It's the equivalent of somebody who makes $100,000 a year giving $20. And I think if you really cared, well, where have you been? It's not like this issue didn't exist before. Why, didn't you, why weren't you giving that for the past decade? So it all felt very insincere. And I was really feeling also that the movement would quickly pass. And yet, you know, at the same time, I was trying to be appreciative of the scale and scope and the sentiment um, of the protest in the U.S., but then there was just something about seeing just how many people came out in so many different countries that really touched me and, 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 and inspired me. Right? The fact that these people were not in the United States, cross an ocean, and still came out in huge numbers, it made it feel more pure and hopeful in terms of the sentiment. And we'll get into this later, but for the first time in a long time, the politics of racism began to break in our favor. Right. I mean, you had the Republican nominee for president, man, who ran against our black president, right? Mitt Romney, was out marching with the protesters in D.C. and then tweeting out the words Black Lives Matter. So something's very different in this country, and I, I am here for all of it. What about you guys? You're both parents as well. And so I'm also curious what it's been like for you dealing with this, with young people kind of seeing this play out through their eyes as well. Yes, yeah, Steve, what you said really resonated with me in terms of this arc of processing and emotionally getting to a more hopeful place. I definitely started off with a lot of just feeling so heartbroken, heartache, outrage, grief, these unfortunately familiar cycle of feelings over the murders, but also the fact of just another reminder of like how often we've had to witness the killing of uh, Black people taken by police. But like you, I have been trying to keep in mind that what I'm witnessing over the past two weeks is this massive gathering for racial justice across the country, across the world. And they've just the fact that collectively they've achieved a scale and level of momentum that you know we've never seen. So I'm trying to hold on to that and stay hopeful because I, I do feel like I have to. I have to try to believe that hopefully there will be lasting meaningful change. 
especially for my daughter and her generation. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm very moved by the videos I've seen from all over the world, including testimonials from people of African descent, especially young people of African de- descent in other countries saying, yeah. this is our problem too. We are oppressed too. It's just a reminder of we need to work as a globe on fighting anti-Black racism. And one thing I just want to quickly mention that has been heartening is how I have been seeing in my social media circles among my Asian American friends and in conversations on the phone, an increased level of conversation about the need for us to address anti-Black racism in our communities. There's unfortunately, it's very much a fact, many Asian Americans hold anti-Black racist views, and we just don't talk about it enough. And white supremacy is a powerful drug. It relies on all of us to uphold it. And many Asian Americans, unfortunately, uphold it without even knowing it. So I am really heartened and hoping this will be continuing and build a momentum among Asian Americans to talk about how to address anti-Black racism, show up as allies, and what does it really mean to be an ally? Yeah, and I, I was struck and moved by the Asian countries around the world. Right, in terms of the level of solidarity and support, you know, large numbers of people coming out. And then in one of the countries where they did have, they were really enforcing the, you know, the pandemic restrictions were not going outside. They were showing how people were doing Zoom protests. And they had this screenshot on one of these news shows. And there was like all these people from all these different places on the Zoom camera, all, you know, in this Asian country, all with their fist raised in solidarity. And so it's really just been quite remarkable to watch all of that as something else and I'm trying to hold that in my mm-hmm. heart as part of it, like I said, still wants to stay jaded. Julie, I definitely wanted to check in with you. How have you been doing? You know, I tend to be pretty cynical. <laughs> like Steve has <laughs> been doing this, you know, over 30 years now and it's like, here we go again. Uh, but I have to say this time I've actually mostly been excited and like happy about what I'm seeing. I feel like we've been waiting for this to when something, some sort of horrific tragedy happens for it to actually turn into something meaningful and lasting and impactful. And I feel like it's happening right now in front of us. And it's sort of this, wow, I'm watching history unfold right before my eyes. And I just really feel like it's for many people, you know, probably not everyone, but for many people, it's being uh, sort of understood as like this moment when the whole country gets to decide what kind of place we want to be. And that's a conversation I've been wanting to have for decades, right? My whole life. And so that's actually sort of made me, it's, it's just been really uplifting. And I think there's a tendency right now for it to be presented more in kind of this black white paradigm but you know it doesn't take much to sort of look at it and see that what we're experiencing in terms of who's out on the streets and what kind of questions they're raising up it's actually a, an incredibly multiracial experience right so you when you even look at the incident itself who was involved right the the arresting or would have been arresting officers we're actually of different races, right? That's There's right. an African-American, right. a Hmong, and the two white officers who are now at the center of this incredible tragedy that was acted out on an African-American man. And I feel like there's a lot of dimension and nuance to what's, what's happened. And people are actually seeming to be capable of understanding that and really tackling that and dealing with. I was particularly moved by the the multiracial nature of protests, you know, especially here in DC. And you have Simone Jacques from San Francisco, 
whose mom uh, grew up in the mission, right? And her family ran a little mom and pop butcher shop. Her dad is Haitian, so she herself is multiracial, 17-year-old teenager, right? Kind of the face of the future of the country and thankfully the face of the folks speaking out on this issue right now. You know, she introduced herself to the crowd of like tens of thousands. I've heard all to 30,000 by saying, you know, I'm black and I'm proud and I'm Afro-Chicana and I'm proud. And I just feel like, yes, it's, it's that moment, right? Like we've been saying this would come and here it is. And, you know, you just have people really of all races leaning in on the history of oppression against black people, but then being able to tie that to white supremacy overall in all the ways that it's oppressing people of all colors as it just tries to keep that stranglehold on power. Thanks, Julie. So, okay, so I wanted to have us dig in to why this is happening. I want to talk about where we are right now and why we're here and essentially, you know, how did we get here and also where do we go from here? So Steve, I know you've had a lot of thoughts on this issue through your lived experience, your academic study. We know that you were an Afro-American studies major at Stanford and through your professional work and research, especially most recently researching and writing, Brown is the New White. I wanted you to share for those people who are trying to grapple with what's going on or who might be new to these issues, and also for those of us who are trying to explain these issues to our friends and family who don't quite have the foundation of understanding, what would you say about the why? Why the whole world is marching for Black lives right now? Yeah, I think that the breadth and spontaneousness of these protests are critical to understanding what's going on, right? And so the fact that you've had all of these protests, it's funny, um, Trevor Noah was talking about how usually protests take a long time and this and that, and this is kind of like people like texting their friends, hey, yo, let's show up. And it, it shows that a chord has been tapped, something has been touched that's common to people in all these different places. And to me, what that it shows is the universality of the experience of African-Americans and the oppression of African-Americans. And the reason it is universal is this country was built on the exploitation and oppression of black people. And that exploitation and oppression continues to this day in every state and every city. So I think another important part of actually why right now and why this time has to do with the power of video, right? So back in the day, in the, the, the late 60s, the Black Panther Party would have this practice of they would watch the police. When they saw the police arresting somebody, they would show up, they would stop their car, show up and observe. But it was just them with their eyes looking at those people. They didn't have live streaming and Facebook Live and video and social media platforms and tools. And now we do. And so the, what that means in terms of the national and international understanding of all this is it cuts through the resistance, right? So the, the writer Ibram X. Hendy, um, he says in, in his book, how to be an anti-racist, where he says, denial is the heartbeat of racism. And I think we've all experienced that. You say something and people are like, well, that's not racist, that's not mm-hmm. racist, or that's not such and such, right? What was it? Um, that's right. Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote this piece a few years ago. He says, uh, who's the guy I have to lynch around here to get that's, called a racist? That's right. right. <laughs> so, what does it take? Right. But there's no denying when you see this video, right? Filmed by a 17-year-old girl as well, by the way. I think that that's a relevant point in terms of the roles people play throughout in history. So it's so powerful and so undeniable that it has unleashed a lot of this sentiment. So that's, I think, a big, a big part of it. And so what, what this has laid bare 
is the role of the police in enforcing an unjust and unequal status quo, right? So Simone Joss, when we were talking about, right, the 17-year-old San Francisco, she has this phrase in her speech, which is like incredibly precocious for a 17-year-old. I couldn't put two sentences together at that age. <laughs> she refers to the police as unionized slave catchers. Mm, that's and I just, so powerful. That was incredibly powerful and insightful. And that is, in fact, the case, right? The, the role of law enforcement in keeping black people subjugated is codified in the United States Constitution, right? Article 4, Section 2, Clause 3. And it says, no person held to service or labor in one state under the laws thereof, escaping into another, shall be discharged from such service or labor, but shall be delivered up on claim of the party to whom such service or labor may be due. That's the United States Constitution, which basically says that if your slave runs away, you can call the police and they can bring them back. That's true. And people really don't grasp that about our history. George Washington himself, right, availed himself of the slave catcher law, right? There's a book by Erica Armstrong Dunbar, who's a history professor at Rutgers. It's called Never Caught the Washington's Relentless Pursuit of Their Runaway Slave, Own a Judge. Right? And she documents in great detail how Washington went and got the cops to track down his property, which was his runaway slave, right? except they weren't able to find her, thank goodness, and she lived out her life as a free woman. Um, and I just also want to point out, back to that whole multiracial thing, that other race groups have, have their own version of this, right? So the Texas Rangers have a long, very ugly history in places like Texas, right? Uh, lynching Mexicans and Tejanos. And in this day and age, they're considered a legitimate law enforcement agency, right? Yeah. So, Julie, can you say quickly what are the Texas Rangers? I think I would, well, for myself included, and probably for most people outside of Texas, the Texas Rangers are a baseball team, a contemporary baseball team in Texas, professional. But yeah, yeah, what are the actual Texas Rangers? Well, it's, it's a you know, statewide law enforcement agency. Obviously, you know, as time has gone by, there's been city police departments and whatnot, but the Texas Rangers still exist. I think comparable to the Georgia, Georgia has a similar thing where there's like the statewide policing entity, the GBI. But yeah, they are, you see them driving down the highway. I mean, they're, they're around <laughs> and people don't look upon them as, a continuation of this incredibly horrific legacy, but in fact they are, right? And we everybody has to take Texas history. I think it's in sixth grade or seventh grade in Texas. And let's just say I didn't learn this aspect about the history of it. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> you don't <class>. say. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But you know, when you look at a lot of the lynching that happened in Texas, the it was, you know, sort of vigilante, just random, you know, people out there taking the law into their own hands. But it was also official law enforcement people just deciding to be judge jury all of that and yeah um, it, it yeah. plays t out everywhere one of the things i mm -hmm. realized researching my my book that i learned is that one of the first laws passed in the state of california or people that after california incorporated was at 1849 or whatever was to allocate money to give to people who had gone out and gotten scalps of native americans oh. and they paid yeah. people and reimbursed them for that mm -hmm. so this is not a new it's not a new and it's not a black only reality mm -hmm. in this country. Yeah. Um, thanks for sharing that, Julie. I had no idea. <laughs> I'm listening to you going, there's so much that we are not taught in school, so we have to educate ourselves and each other. 
speaking of the the roles of police and perception, how we do think about how some people think about them and how others perceive them, how I think a lot of privileged people, and this isn't about class, but it's about the different privileges that uh, allow us to feel safe in the society. A lot of privileged people see the police as their essentially like their friends, right? And how they look up to them. They feel that they are there to keep them safe. And they believe that they're there to keep everybody safe and that we can't have a society without them the way they are. Uh, These are people who have never had to even think about whether or not an interaction with the police would put their lives in danger or the lives of their loved ones in danger. I think a lot of them don't appreciate the larger issue and larger role that police forces play in relationship to preserving both white supremacy and oppressing African-Americans. And I think, unfortunately, this goes unexamined even by people who consider themselves progressive or Democrats or people who believe that they are, they are not conservative or right wing, but they still have these unexamined views of their long held belief on what uh, their perceptions of police are. So to help explain that, I want to play this clip from Nicole Hannah-Jones, a New York Times journalist who spearheaded the 1619 Project, which is an incredible award-winning project to highlight the centrality of the oppression of Black people in the creation of the United States. The slave patrols, which were brought into existence in order to uh, maintain slavery, to police insurrections, and to ensure that enslaved people were always where they were supposed to be, morphed directly into police, particularly in the South and also into the Northeast. And during the time of slavery, it was legal to use lethal force on enslaved people for any infraction. Um, If slave people resisted capture, if enslaved people were uh, in a place where they weren't supposed to be, it was legal to use lethal force. And and we are seeing the on Going legacy of that, of the type of policing that Black Americans get uh, is often a form of social control and often um, the, the belief that lethal force is justified no matter how petty the alleged crime. Okay, Julie, so you're the PhD in our mix and you have a lot of friends in academia and the world of scholarship. What is the state of evidence and scholarship that supports this analysis that people can use to educate themselves and their friends? So there's all sorts of really good resources out there, but I'll start with just uh, Michelle Alexander, who had an excellent op-ed in the New York Times on June 9th, and it's called America, This Is Your Chance. I really recommend folks go and read that. It's an excellent, concise sort of mini curriculum on these very issues. And she just really lays out the history and has good sites to bibliography of other resources. Some of those include Ibram X. Kendi, who Steve mentioned earlier in the, in the show. Um, he's got a book called How to Be an Anti-Racist, as well as one called Stamp from the Beginning. Ava DuVernay, whose film 13 is another one that everybody should really take the, the chance to go and watch that. Andrea Ritchie's book, Invisible No More, Uh, which is on police violence against black women and women of color. Uh, There's several others, but in total, Michelle Alexander mentions, I think it's 12 books and movies that really hit directly on this. And I'll just add another book from the Latino Mexican American perspective that I just started reading. It's called The Injustice Never Leaves You, Anti-Mexican Violence in Texas. It's by uh, Dr. Monica Munoz 
Martinez, and she recounts the periods of vigilantism and brutality against Mexicans in Texas that we talked about earlier. And the bits that I've already begun to read are just really captivating and just chock full of really important history for folks. That's a great title, The Injustice Never Leaves. It reminds me of um, James Baldwin has this quote where he says, to be black and relatively conscious in America is to be in a rage almost all the time. And so again, mm. this, this never leaves yes. you concept. Great, great quote. So if people are looking for one specific book, I really do as recommend a starting point. I just got and started reading this Ibram X. Kendi book, right? How to be an anti-racist. And so he has a combination of very specific, compelling points that speak to people individually, which is a whole other fascinating thing in this moment too. And actually I'll throw into the mix this book, White Fragility. It talks about the defensiveness that a lot of white, uh, white folks have talking about racism issues that five of the top 10 selling books in the country right now are anti-racist books. And that a uh, number of like local bookstores, and I believe even maybe Amazon have run out of the books wow. because everybody is so trying to do a fast curriculum around what the hell is going on here and how do we deal with all of this stuff? And so people are looking for specific steps and, and the, uh, uh, Ibram X. Kendi, you know, offers a lot of that, I think, for people individually about what they can do. But he, what I find compelling and hopeful is that he does it in a way that I think can actually increase support for public policies in meaningful anti-racist policy agenda. Because um, I really think a lot of the resistance to public policy changes because of this notion, something we talked about in the last podcast, this notion of blaming poor people, blaming people of color for their situation without understanding the larger societal context. So I just want to read a couple of sentences from his, his book. He says, what's the problem with being, quote, not racist? It's a claim that signifies neutrality. I am not a racist, but neither am I aggressively against racism. But there is no neutrality in the racism struggle. One either believes problems are rooted in groups of people as a racist or locates the roots of the problems in power and policies as an anti-racist. One either allows racial inequities to persevere as a racist or confronts racial inequities as an anti-racist. There is no in-between safe space of not racist. I just, I just love that. That is, there's so much wisdom in that and so much to unpack. I, I definitely recommend people to check that out. And did we ever, Steve, did you and I ever think that we would even be able to utter that phrase that the top selling books are all on racism and how to, you know, how to learn to not be racist and how to fight racism. It's, um, it's really a, yeah, it's, it's really something. It's mind boggling. It's also, I think, another manifestation is we talk a lot about the political implications, right? Of the, of the demographic revolution, the new American majority, majority or of young people or certainly children at this point are people of color. And so the, we look at them in terms of voting, and obviously that's super critical, but they're also part of the population. They're people who march, they're people who buy books, they're people who are out there changing the society and the culture in broader ways as well. That's right. And uh, Julie and I are raising two multiracial children, so we're actively do our part on raise, trying to raise the next generation to be a lot more aware than the current one. Um, okay, so let's talk about solutions. I'm sure this is going to be an ongoing topic and we're not going to be able to cover everything today because a lot of it is um, just, just so much and a lot of it is also developing as we speak. But for right now, Steve, what do you see right now are a few key solutions and what should we be pushing for? Yeah, well, first, I don't want us to skip over what's already happened. 
Right. So let's pause for a moment and appreciate what we've already won over the really the past couple of weeks that, you know, things people have been fighting for for years are finally happening. Right. So Confederate monuments are coming down all over the country. And I didn't even realize some of the stuff until really friend Tram Nguyen is a political leader in Virginia. He's posting about these gains that you're making. There's a whole street in Richmond, Virginia called Monument Avenue, and it has several statues to Confederate leaders. And most prominently is this two, huge, two-story high statue of Robert E. Lee, the general of the racist Confederacy. And uh, they tried to get that taken down before, and then there would be like fits and starts for people not responding. And they would do it, but then they would backslide. But just this past week, or within the past two weeks, the governor announced that he's finally going to take down that statue. And then the day that he announced it, then people were they projected the picture of George Floyd onto the monument. And then there's all this, I will not call it graffiti, call it the people's art have put on it as well. And, and they're taking down the other statues there. So what Tram was pointing out is that by the end of the year, the only monument left on Monument Avenue is going to be of Arthur Ashe, the black tennis pro. And that street was called Monument Avenue really as a celebration to the racist Confederate leaders of this country. So that I just think is kind of amazing. And I want to, want to appreciate that. And that I haven't seen any numbers and statistics on this point, but it certainly feels to me like more bad cops have been fired in the past two weeks than in the past two years, if not the past two decades. And then uh, despite, you know, my cynicism about some of these statements of public, you know, support, there's been a lot of financial commitments made to address racial inequality, right? Unlike, you know, Zuckerberg's one-time $10 million, right? The basketball star Michael Jordan is committing $10 million a year for the next 10 years. So all of that is to the very significant, and I don't think we should miss appreciating and celebrating the different wins that we've had. And then we'll talk about this more later, but there's also been major shifts in public opinion. So turning to solutions, I think there are three big things to focus on immediately. So first, supporting this demand to defund the police, which is really about reimagining the role of the police in our society. Second is building political power by electing progressive social justice leaders who come from and are committed to the community. And we really saw this play itself out in uh, Minnesota. The elected district attorney dragging his feet, only reluctantly brought a very low-level charge against the cop who had his neck and, and, and killed George Floyd, puts out some you know, information suggesting that it, it really he had some pre-existing condition that led to it. All the kinds of excuses that you tend to see from district attorneys. But the top law enforcement person in the state of Minnesota is Keith Ellison, an African-American Muslim man with a long history and track record of fighting for social justice. He used to be in Congress, and now he's the attorney general. And so the governor has put this investigation in Keith's hands. And then right after that, you see all of the cops arrested. You see the upgrading of the charges against the, uh, the principal officer there. And that resulted in it had an impact. And I think it was meaningful for the community, for the family to feel like there is potentially some justice here. But that's because Keith ran and won and got elected. And so getting more people into positions of political power is going to be critical going forward. I think it's to be important strategic uh, focus for the movement. And third, we need truth and reconciliation in this country. Right? Once South Africa finally flipped its control, Mandela took over, one of the first things they did was institute a Truth and Reconciliation Commission to come to terms with that country's history of racism, oppression of its black population and what that meant. 
And we've never had that. I met somebody, like, maybe it was a decade ago, who was doing work in this country, and she was from Germany. And she was telling me that in Germany, there's a sense of national shame about the Holocaust. And the country really feels this, and they feel the need to be better and to atone for that. She said, in this country, there's no shame about the history of racism and oppression of black people. And I just found that very striking, particularly as somebody who you know, has an has a outside perspective. But we have an opportunity, I think, in terms of as a, as a, as a focus and a, for this movement, is there is a bill in Congress, H.R. 40, which would establish a commission to explore the legacy of slavery and oppression of African Americans and to explore reparations or what we can do to address the current manifestations of that history. And this bill has been out there for 41 years, I believe. So uh, Congressman John Connors first introduced it in 1979. He couldn't even get co-sponsors. Bear in mind, it's not a bill to say give people reparations. It's a bill to say, let's just study what happened and think about what to do. And he couldn't get uh, support for that bill over all these different years and decades. So now Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee has introduced it, as she introduced in 2019. They've got over 100 co-sponsors. Cory Booker's introduced it in the Senate. He's got a dozen co-sponsors there. Democrats control the House. They should be able to move this bill now. And this is clearly the time to actually do it. And then you've got very broad, surprising mainstream uh, support for doing uh, reparations. Right? The head of Snapchat, Evan Spiegel, is calling for a reparations commission. And so we have the opportunity and I think that we need to push the elected officials to move forward on that. And then also with Biden, and that Biden has not publicly come out in support of H.R. 40, and a lot of the other presidential candidates did last year. And so he should be pushed to state his support for that, as well as make a pledge and commitment that if it doesn't pass through Congress, he's going to create a, by executive action what is an essentially would be a Truth and Reconciliation Commission for this country. Yeah, I'm really glad that the issue of reparations is back in the national conversation because I was worried that with COVID it had totally disappeared from people's memory and consciousness and, and sense of urgency. It just seems like so long ago, but it was exciting in the beginning of this year when all the uh, the Democratic nominees were one by one coming out, talking about it and taking a stance and saying they were, many of them were saying that they were for it. So I'm really glad to see that topic back. In terms of solutions and building political power, I wanted to let our listeners know that right now we have a partnership. We at Democracy in Color have a partnership with the Collective PAC, which is a Black-run political action committee that has launched the Justice for All Action Fund. And that's a fund that is focused on recruiting and supporting Black judicial, prosecutorial, and attorney general candidates. And Steve, I wanted to also just follow that up by asking you a question about what Democrats should be doing now and political tactics right now, because really that's also in the news is this discussion right now about the call for defunding police. Is that a smart demand? I know that some people have been pointing out that Trump and McConnell are already using it to weaken public support for the movement and to try to portray Democrats as both not caring about public safety and not focusing on the fact that, meanwhile, 40 million people are out of work right now. You mean the 40 million people for whom McConnell and Trump want to cut the extension of unemployment benefits, those 40 million people? Yeah, yeah. Yes, <laughs> right. So, but, they, but they really care. Yeah, right. Well, it's, it, it's tricky. I would even say for myself, if I first heard about the fund, uh, the police, Jessica Bird is one of the leading young activists, countries runs the Electoral Justice Project, she was tweeting this out, and I was all like, uh, I'm not so sure, right? And so, but it's, you know, you don't want to be left behind by history. 
And so the first thing to realize is that it's working. So not only is Minneapolis, which is right, the city where, where they killed George Floyd, are they defunding the police? They're disbanding the police department, which is like mind-boggling. They're totally reconceptualize and rethink and start over in terms of public safety there. Los Angeles is cutting, you're going to move $200 million from police to community support, community work. San Francisco's exploring similar things. Chicago's exploring similar things. So it's not so crazy in terms of its uh, as a demand. And then the other part of it is, is that it reflects the reality of what people are feeling and experiencing, right? What's happening in terms of relationship between police and the community, particularly police and African-Americans is real and it's raw and very painful. And it's important to honor that and honor that in a way that is as dramatic as the pain that's being inflicted. Third, it forces a bigger and much needed conversation about what exactly is the role of the police in our society. Right? I mean, I was on the school board in San Francisco in the 1990s, and we began to get into this, right? And so it's like, should we have cops? Should we have armed cops in our schools? Is that the role that they should be playing? The New York Times' podcast, The Daily, is the, the reporter John Elegon, an African-American, was, did a whole issue on this defund the police concept and raising the point that if somebody is homeless or has a mental health issue, do you call armed police or do you call a social worker? So what we need to grapple with now is rethinking and reimagining what exactly is the role of the police and defund the police as a demand that really forces us to grapple with those tough questions. Okay, Steve, so I'm hearing all that, but the question is, is this good politics, especially in a presidential election year, one that is possibly, you know, so high stakes, one is, that is possibly one of the most important presidential election years in our lifetime? Yeah, and I think that that's the, that's the question. But it, in an interesting, even counterintuitive way, it actually is. And a reporter had called me about that exact question, asked me what Biden should be doing about it, right? So definitely, it's a tightrope that he's walking um, from a short-term electoral standpoint. But one of the things that the, really the Obama administration did not understand is that there's a value in having a strong left flank on two fronts. And so one is it pushes people to do the right thing and to stay connected to what's happening in the community. And then second, that it can actually make the person look more reasonable to the people in the middle. And so if it's clear that there's this other grouping of people that have a position, defund the police, and then Biden has not yet moved there, and he said that he doesn't support defunding the police, he supports making reforms, et cetera, that daylight between them can actually accrue his electoral benefit in kind of an odd way, which is real nonetheless. So from a tactical standpoint, there is some, there is some value to that. I mean, I just think the other thing is that we have to be mindful of when the entire conversation changes and the whole movement gets pushed and the whole country and the whole world gets pushed in a more progressive, more left direction. So when you have Mitt Romney, the 2012 Republican nominee, marching with protesters and then tweeting out the words Black Lives Matter, the conversation has been expanded in terms of what's who can be doing what and who can actually be saying what. Yeah. And I'd just like to add that on that whole reimagining piece, that this isn't some crazy let the criminals roam free sort of proposal, right? If you think about it, like other countries have a far different approach to policing and arming the police that are, you know, sort of their beat cops. And their crime rates are far lower than that of the United States, right? So the U.S. has like about 106 gun-related deaths every year per million in our population. Compare that to New Zealand, which has 2.4 deaths per million. There are other ways to do this that actually work better. Julie, before we let you go, I wanted to make sure that we dive into some polling numbers with you to get a snapshot on 
public opinion on all of this. What do we know about how the protests and marches are being viewed by the broader public? And what impact is this having on the presidential election race? Well, there's great news on both fronts. So, I mean, it's frankly pretty surprising to me. (laughs) The whole world is marching and much of the country's shifting its views as this is unfolding on Black Lives. So you've got a recent CNN poll showing that 84% of people believe that the protests that are taking place around the country are justified. And in that same poll, it shows Biden with a 14-point lead nationally over Trump, which I believe is the biggest his lead has been to date. Yep. And um, in terms of the battleground states, which actually you know will be the critical ones, uh, one of the states that everybody's always obsessed with is Michigan. And as you may recall, we lost that one by only 11,000 votes. Well, a Detroit Free Press poll found that Biden is leading Trump there by 12 points. So given, you know, the consistency across these polls, it's unlikely that any of them are, you know, real outliers. This is this is a true reflection of what's going on out there in the world. And nearly all the polling is finding that the election is trending in Biden's direction. Yeah, and I'll just add on that, too, that Biden's actually doing well with older voters, which usually isn't what happens. Usually it's a Republican who does well with older voters. Trump tweeted out to, in uh, Buffalo, the cops pushed the 75-year-old man to the ground. He hit, fell back, hit his head, and he's in intensive care in Buffalo. And then Trump tweeted out, well, maybe he was filming the police and doing something he shouldn't have been doing, and it was part of an attempt to disrupt their operations. This is the president of the United States responding to the 75-year-old white man who was attacked by the police. So when that's how he's relating to old people, it's not any surprise that his support is dissipating. And then just the other thing I just want to lift up on all of what Julie was saying is that I believe this is a rare moment where the dynamics of racism and white supremacy may actually work in our political favor. Right? I mean, I think it happened in 2008 when there was this kind of national catharsis, particularly among a lot of white voters, that you know, we could elect an African-American president. So the country's racial history redounded to our benefit. Since 2015, ever since Trump got into the race, it's all been to his benefit, certainly personally. His rise has been fueled by white fears and anxieties, and that's what's made him impervious to the normal types of scandals and attacks and whatnot. And then we should remember that politically it's not down to the Republicans' benefits, right? They've lost state governorships, they lost the House, lost a lot of these special elections. But Trump personally has been able to rise above all of that because of his embrace of white supremacy in this country. And that now, for the first time, it really is looking like the chickens of white supremacy are coming home to roost at the White House. I'm sorry. I was just chuckling, like thinking about an image. This is what you get from living with an eight-year-old of chickens of white supremacy. <laughs> <laughs> like it's a, like a good cartoon. Well, that's more hopeful, and it is quite a hopeful note to end on, and I will take it. I keep saying, in 2020, come on, like, I need some good news. <laughs> I, need, I need some things to feel hopeful about, and some of the things we've mentioned today do make me feel more hopeful. We haven't had a chance to do a closing question in a while, so let's quickly share one lasting memory from a protest march you've participated in, whatever comes to mind. It was 1985, I was a college sophomore I went down to Watsonville, California to march with the Watsonville cannery workers. I remember them shooting tear gas at us and and running the opposite direction. And I remember someone picking up a rock and throwing it through the rear window of a police car. And then our friend Kim Jaron, who was an activist, he turns to me and says, you're not at Stanford anymore. 
That's good. good I think mine, mine would have, my memory probably would have been of something to do with Watsonville as well. But after this week, if you'd asked me that a week ago, but now it's uh, being a mom during a protest taking place and having my teenager son out there and being in close proximity to people getting tear gas on them. Uh, one of his good buddies got hit by a rubber bullet. I mean, these are turning points in people's lives. And yeah, that one's going to stay with me for a while. Wow. Yeah, I also just the first thing that came to my mind, um, I guess, because it was such a special moment was actually hard to believe earlier this year, I brought my daughter to her first march. You know, the women's march is a march, but it is a, definitely a form of protest against um, patriarchy and sexism, misogyny. And so I brought her there. And because she was old enough to understand, we'd already talked about these issues about women's rights, that she really took it in. And she understood exactly why we're there and got really into the signs and the chance and it was a special memory for me and my family. Yeah, somebody, I think a historian talked about people get educated in the school of big events and these types of things can be really transformative, I think, for generations and for people. All right, so thank you guys for a great conversation and a really important time. And I want to thank all of our listeners for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. And I want to let you know that the next episode, we're going to have a very special guest and so special, in fact, that for the first time, we're releasing a special separate episode that will be released next week. So I don't want to jinx it because, you know, last minute logistics sometimes happen, but it just might be a person who is a major presidential candidate. So stay tuned for that. And then if you're not already signed up on the Democracy in Color email list, please do so so that you get all the latest news and developments of what we're actually doing. Help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, keep marching and keep the faith. <laughs>